Well, hello and welcome back to the Tips and Tales podcast. I'm your host, Robert Poe, and I am again here with trainer and author George DaCosta. George, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is all about listening to what you have to say, and so excited to, to have this next conversation. Uh, before we dive into the bulk of our conversation, I uh, wanted to ask you, so you had um, a clinic recently. Um, since the last time that we talked. So uh, maybe if you want to give us a couple highlights from it, or, uh, you know, maybe if you saw somebody with an aha moment, since I know that's one of the things that you love to see in people and see in dogs. Um, and then, you know, maybe if there was anything that you learned as well, because I know that you're somebody who's constantly trying to learn. So maybe you can just give us a quick recap on some of those kind of things, and then we'll dive into the rest of the conversation. Sure. Yeah, I had a, a dog training clinic at my gun dog ranch um, this past weekend. I had people coming in on Friday, and I'll need to apologize if I sound a little raspy today because I talk Friday, Saturday, and Sunday literally all day long, usually from about 8 in the morning till 8, 30, 9, 10 o'clock at night. By by Monday and Tuesday, my voice was pretty much gone. Yeah, understandably so. So my apologies. Um, it, it was, it was a, a great weekend. We had people come from Canada and all across the United States. What I really liked about it was I had some folks there that hadn't got their puppy yet, and I had folks there that were going to the Invitational and have the Invitational. So I had an array of dogs there, uh, as well as breeds. We had, you know, uh, of course, Griffs and Poodle Pointer and German Shorthair. And let's see, we had English, few English Setters. We even had a Golden Retriever. And we just had a lot of different breeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then we had different ages of people. We had a, a little girl, Brooke, who wants to train her first puppy, who she had here. Riley was here. And uh, all the way to, you know, very experienced, I won't say uh, older people, but very experienced <laughs> people. So it was a very diverse group. Um, and uh, it was it was great. I did a lot of dog demonstrations, did a lot of talking, went over the, uh, the, the, the you know, the, the book from start to finish to and, and training techniques and stories and all that and questions. Oh, I had a lot of questions. I actually love questions because There'll be somebody sitting there wanting to ask a question. They won't. Somebody else will ask it, and they'll like, oh, good, I wanted to hear that answer. And then they'll feel okay about asking something else, and it takes off in a a good direction, I think. I I enjoy questions. Um, I also had uh, my friend Levi Day, who is an avid outdoorsman and a, a fitness guru. He went over safety with your dogs and yourself out in the field, and I had a... Uh, one of my veterinarians, my, my veterinarian that actually um, takes care of both Coda and CK, uh, Alicia, um, she spoke and got some great, great tips there. Um, you asked one, one aha moment, and I've always I've I've dealt with dogs that I've seen that are dehydrated and overheated. I've actually helped save one dog's life with Pedialyte and stuff many many years ago, and. I see that all the time, and one of the things I didn't know, and I don't ever pour water on a dog because that's like a blanket. People think that that cools off the dog. It, it doesn't. It, it actually will overheat them more because that, that, that water will create a blanket on their, on their back. What I do is I take water, and I put it on their underarms, and I flap their ears over, and I put it on the skin on their ears, and I put it around their private areas, 
and that cools the dog down quicker um, because it's getting right to the skin and the blood vessels and such. Well, what she does, she said, as soon as they get a dog in that is uh, overheated and dehydrated, they pour rubber right there in the clinic. They pour rubbing alcohol all over the dog right away. Mm. And the evaporation of that starts cooling the dog down. And then they also will put on the underarms and things of that, that nature. I had never heard of that. And I thought, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that in other situations, but not, I mean, it makes perfect sense that it, you know, would uh, apply to, to dogs as well. Yeah. I'm, 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 you can bet right now I'm going to get two bottles of uh, rubbing alcohol and they'll be in my first aid kit. And if I see a dog that's overheating, they, she said they just pour it right on. Um, mm-hmm. so, okay, that's something I didn't know, and I'm grabbing it. So, so that's actually some something you just learned that would would have been in the book had you known it before, because yeah. you have that whole chapter on a first aid kit and what you have in there, and r- add rubbing alcohol. Write that in. <laughs> yep. Right. If you've got the book, write that into the margins. <laughs> yeah. Rubbing alcohol in case they overheat. Yep. And just they, she said they literally just pour it all over the dog, pour it right down the back, and just start pouring. It. And she said you can see it started evaporating and it starts bringing the temperature down on the dog so hmm. I, that was a that was a real good one in fact when she mentioned that there was a lot of questions i said that was worth the price of a mission right there yeah right yeah. seriously so, yeah and then i uh in the book i talk about hold how you can teach a puppy to to hold when it's young if it wants to and i had mm-hmm. a little a little pup there i mean i don't know how old it was but it was small and and uh, so the first day i when we got to that section, I said, let me show you how to just do pull, two hold. It's, you know, like teaching your dog to shake hands or bark, whatever. I'm not going to put any pressure on this dog. And this little puppy, you know, took just a few, a few times of holding its mouth together and saying hold and then taking it back and praising it. And it got it. And so the next day I grabbed the pup again as we, I always, I always go back and then go forward. So that's a, that's a tip I can throw out right now. And I, I mentioned this in the clinic a lot. When I'm working with the dog in sessions or, you know, myself, my own dogs, what have you, before I I go forward with something new or something further in advanced, I always take a couple steps back. So I refresh the dog's memory mm-hmm. on what it's already learned, get it back and then move up and then go forward. So I'm not going from port, point A to point D and then starting at E. If I go point A to point D, I'll go back to C and then we'll move forward and then I'll hit D, E, and F. I do mm-hmm. that every time. It, 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 I try to do things in a sequence that the dog understands. Yeah. So if I back up a little bit, I can, uh, I can get the dog moving forward much easier. Um, you think that that helps with that dog's confidence that it knows what it's supposed to do next? Absolutely, it does. Yeah, I mentioned that a lot in, in the book, and, and, and that is if you have a dog that understands what you're trying to get it to do, and then it complies, and then you reward it, learning becomes fun, and the dog learns to learn. It wants to learn. Mm-hmm. When you have a dog that's confused and you're asking it to do something, and then you're expecting it to comply, that can turn into a train wreck. Um, so absolutely backing up and then moving forward as part of that sequence and making the dog know what you're asking of it, how mm-hmm. to comply and keep that moving forward in a, in a positive manner for you. So even, dog. so with that, to help make sure that you don't get to that place where they look at you, like you want me to do what I don't understand yeah. is so, you know, if you had the sequence, uh, yeah, where, you know, you said A to D instead of starting maybe even at D, going back to B or C 
the next time you come to it so that that way it, it, it has that moment of like, oh, I know this. Oh, I know this. Okay. Oh, now I'm ready to learn something new. Yes. And that transfers from, from bringing home your puppy, some of the foundational things that you'll do, at least the way I like to do it. There's a, there's a lot of different ways of training and a lot of methods out there and a lot of good methods out there. And, and like I said, you know, before is get as many tools as you can and then find the tools that work for your dog, you Mm -hmm. and your dog. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I will, I will back up and do things in a sequence and that's for the training that's going on now, but it's also for more advanced training. Much of my training when the dog is young is a foundation for getting into more advanced training when the dog gets older and more mature and has more experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's the same thing. It's a, pro- a progression that the dog understands and therefore complies easier and therefore enjoys it more. Yeah. And it's a more positive experience. So to get back to, to the little puppy and what we're talking about here. So at first I just, uh, I, I rolled a little wooden doll in its mouth and I, and I put my hand under its, under its jaw and on top of its muzzle. And then I just said, hold, hold, hold for just a couple seconds and pulled my hand off. And then just, just for a second. And actually I didn't even pull my hand off the first time. I just said, give and give and took the, took the doll and, you know, praised it up and so on and so forth. And then held its muzzle a little longer and a little longer, a little longer, and then took my hands off for a little bit and then took my hands off for a little longer, a little longer. And, and that was about it. The dog had got it. It was taking the, taking the dowel in its mouth, looking at me, holding it and then giving mm-hmm. it back to me. Well, the second day, um, I mean, it rocked it. This little puppy was so cute. And so I, I said, okay, we did, did some work with this dog yesterday. Now let's move forward. And so I stepped back a little bit and I, and I took, took the wooden dowel and had the dog just hold it for a moment, open my hands and put it back on the dog and then took it back. And then I just opened my hands a little longer. Then I stepped away. Then I opened my hands for a little longer, stepped away, took it. And within, I'm not kidding you, oh, five minutes, we're, we're, we're talking five, five to seven minutes, I, I was given that dog and it was opening its mouth, taking the dowel, sitting there, holding it until I said give and reached back and then it was give it to me. And it was mm-hmm. just so cute. It was just great. <laughs> And that's a, that's a game that I play with the pups. Um, it's not force fetch. Don't, don't even consider this force fetch because if the puppy didn't want to do it, we wouldn't have done it, but it sure sets up to make force fetch much easier in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and if no, for no other reason that they kind of view it as, you know, the starting thing of holding something in its mouth as a positive thing. And so you have to put on probably a significantly less pressure in the future because there's always that already that foundational piece of, oh, I know how to hold something in my mouth. Exactly. And it was positive. It was not, you know, it was not negative. So going into the force fetch, it doesn't start off as a, as a negative right away. It starts off as like you said, oh, I know how to do this. I get a treat. This is fun. He get you know, Mm -hmm. he raises Mm -hmm. me and so on. Um, And, and. You know, I'll also mention I did a lot of presentations out there with some dogs that weren't pointing, some dogs that were haven't been introduced to, to birds and, you know, things of that nature. And I worked with a lot of dogs over, over the weekend and all, actually over Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But I think it was kind of kind of unique or kind of neat for people to see because the dogs that I worked with, um, most of them had like a little challenge someplace or were just starting off and, and we worked on, on whatever the challenge might be. 
And then I brought uh, uh, one of the pups that I've been working with from the beginning. This pup came to me. It's a CK puppy. It's my friend Jim's pup named Chipper. And we did a demonstration of, of that dog. And one of the things that I do in pointing is after I, I get the dog to understand, understand that it's supposed to point, then I we give it a woe. And then we wait for it to make a mistake so that when it moves, the bird goes bye-bye and we mm-hmm. walk away. So the dog learns that if I stand still, that I, I wait, that bird doesn't move. If I go to move, the bird flies away. I get nothing. And, and we work on having the handler go to the dog and to the bird and back and forth. And then once the dog is getting sturdy, steady enough that it, that it doesn't, doesn't move, then we will uh, flush a bird before it moves and shoot it and let the dog get the bird and hold mm-hmm. on to it and run around. Well, Chipper comes out. Chipper's going to be doing his natural ability test um, this, this upcoming month. And, and you could just see the dog had been brought along in the sequence that it knew what to do. We put two birds out. And he pointed the first bird from about 35 yards away. And I was trying to show people how to get the dog to make a mistake. I had I had Jim go up and pet it and then back up and go up and pet it. And I had Jim go up to where the bird was and go in front of the dog. And here's, an, here's another tip for you. Um, and I taught this to Jim a while back because I've trained a few dogs for him. Um, when you go to your dog when it's on point or go to the bird, and excuse me if I repeat myself uh, but I, repetition creates an automatic response. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to repeat myself. But you want to come into your dog from the side so that the dog can see you coming in. And you can even give your dog a soft woe or put a hand signal up. You don't want to come in the dog from directly behind, coming, coming up its rear end. Because just like you, if you feel somebody walking behind you, coming up behind you, it can be a uh, odd feeling you want to turn around and look at see who it is mm-hmm. um, and you get that feeling like what's going on right I'm sure you've had it oh yeah and a dog will feel the same way and if it's on point and it feels somebody pressuring them in the back some one of the way to relieve that pressure is to break point go forward and then it goes and takes out the bird so you want to come in from the side so the dog can see you so chippers had this done a lot um, so chipper goes on point and Jim comes in, pets him, goes back, pets him, goes back, and then goes up front to where the bird is and backs up and goes to where the bird is and backs up. And then I tell him to move around like he's trying to find the bird. And I'm trying to get Chipper to make a mistake and break on that first bird so I can flush it. Mm -hmm. And so they can see, you know, what happens. The dog will be rock steady. And soon as it moves, the bird goes bye-bye. Well, we couldn't get him to move. He would just, (laughs) just like a statue. So I literally had to go up and kind of, almost jump a little bit with my feet and stomp the ground to get him to just kind of jerk a little bit. And, and then we, and then we sent the bird, the first bird, mm-hmm. the second bird, we don't wait that long. The second bird, we, when you get to the bird that you're going to shoot over the dog, you want it to go well. So you want the sequence when you first start with the dog for me anyway, is I want to bring the dog in. If I have to help the point by holding the lead on a half inch or whatever, when it's first starting off, I will, the dog goes on point, you're going to wait till the dog moves. And as soon as the dog moves, the bird's going to go away. And then you let the dog chase to learn it can't catch the bird, right? Mm-hmm. So the dog goes on point, it moves, the bird goes bye-bye. You walk away, the dog chases, the bird goes goes all over the place, can't, can't get the bird. It learns it can't catch the bird without you because what we do is when we move forward, now this is, this is you know, number sessions forward or number birds on the dog forward, and the dog now is holding steady. 
we want to shoot that bird right away and not get the dog to make a mistake. We want the dog being still Mm -hmm. on point when the bird flushes. So it realizes the bird flushed on its own. It didn't make any movement at all. And then we shoot the bird and then the dog gets to get a bird in its mouth. So it puts together, oh, we're a team. Mm -hmm. If I go on point and I move, nobody gets anything. And I chase this bird and I can't catch it. If I go on point and he or she comes in and that bird flushes on its own, then they shoot it and I get to get a bird in my mouth. Yeah. yeah. And then what we do is we let the bird, we let the bird, let the dog hold the bird in its mouth as long as it's not, as long as it's not munching. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake I see a lot of people soon as make. As soon as the puppy picks up a bird, they start calling the dog back. And as soon as the pup gets to them, they reach down and pull that bird out of the dog's mouth saying, good boy or good girl. Mm-hmm. Well, now the dog second time or third time around is thinking, I didn't really want to give him or her that bird. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to come all the way back. Right. I want to, I want to keep the bird. So mm-hmm. now you got a dog or a puppy that doesn't want to come back to you or it comes back to you and it chomps down on the bird trying to hold it because it doesn't want you to take the bird away. Yeah. So now you're introducing hard mouth to the, to the pup. So what we do when it's first getting its birds is we let it run around. Well, Chipper did great. He would not move. Finally, we got him to, to just kind of flinch almost and sent the first bird. The next bird, we shot it. It went and got, he went and grabbed that bird. He pranced around in front of the whole crowd like he was secretariat holding that bird <laughs> for a while and came to us and we, you know, pet him. Sometimes we take the bird and give it right back to him. And for, for a few minutes, he just ran around showing it off. And, and that also teaches the dog to hold to hold the bird, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's enjoying itself. And uh, and then it finally he dropped it on its own and we went, picked it up and just started playing with them, did some other stuff. But the point I was trying to make is that puppy had been brought up in a sequence of bird introduction, shot introduction, introduction to pointing, whoa, um, how the bird gets away, chasing the bird, allowing it to hold, allowing it to search and be out in the field. Mm-hmm. The sequence it understood, you could tell it knew the whole way and it was all fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and each step was small enough that it could, it could make the step in a reasonable way. You know, I think that that's something that to point out with the, you talking about the second bird, you want it, you want it to be successful. So you don't make them hold for near as long as when you're trying to get them to make the mistake. And, um, because you do, it's that moment of like, no, I'm not going to make this hard for you. Exactly. I'm going to make it so that you can be successful, successful so that when you get to a moment where it might be a little bit harder, you know, if you've got, you know, out pheasant hunting and there's a, you know, a pheasant runs on them or something. I, I don't know any sort of situation out in the field that is naturally going to be harder than in the training field that they know, like, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And they, they put it all together. They understand the sequence. They understand how we're working as a team because mm-hmm. of how it, how it unfolded. And that, that builds a foundation. And, you know, that's a good point on hunting because, um, and by the way, I just want to mention this. We did one bird and two birds because it was a demonstration. I was going from eight to nine o'clock at night and in the morning, nine o'clock at night, we were doing a lot. I didn't have time to do four birds with that dog in the field. Yeah. Generally speaking, he had already had four birds done multiple times to get him where he 
he was doing what he, you know how mm-hmm. you know you mm-hmm. looked at that dog and went oh my goodness that dog's an advanced dog well it wasn't it was a dog that had been out here a few times and we did a number of birds but it understood that if it stayed still after it pointed and didn't move and waited mm-hmm. for the bird to flush on its own, it got a bird in its mouth. And once it got a bird in its mouth, it could hold it and prance around and show off and do whatever it wanted. Yeah. So it wasn't a one, two bird step. I want people to realize that it was multiple bir- birds at, at, at multiple sessions. Yeah. Which goes back to that, you know, repetition creates that automatic response that, you know, you just because they did it once doesn't mean that they're going to do it right every time from that moment forward. Right, right, right. Get, getting exposure. And as I mentioned, I want to, I'll get back, reminded me to mention wild birds, but I don't want to forget this, which you said was a good point because this happens quite often when you're working with the dog and you're training it in, in, in what you're doing is you're mimicking wild birds. Birds can teach your dogs a lot, but who has 50 birds all around them, every day or three times a week where they can go out and work their dog on birds and shoot in the air and maybe shoot a bird. You just can't do that nowadays. There's not that many birds out there, places to go do that. So we're mimicking mm-hmm. what a wild bird would do and how it would teach your dog. Um, so often this happens. You, you train and you mimic the wild birds and you're in controlled circumstances and you bring your dog along in a sequence and the dog's rocking it. And then you go out hunting and the first thing the dog does is gets into a cubby quail or whatever and gets all excited and breaks point and the birds all fly away. As a dog handler and trainer, it's so easy to just take that shot. Now, if, if yeah, yeah, I will admit I am very guilty of that <laughs> in that moment. I'm just like, oh my gosh, there's the bird that we've been looking for for an hour, and she didn't point it, but I'm going to shoot it. Yeah, and now you're teaching your dog to be a, a fleshing dog yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So, um, but what happens is the the dog, you know, doesn't point and goes in and takes the birds out, or points just for a second and goes in and takes the birds out, and they all fly away, and and off it goes. Um, you have to have some patience to not shoot that bird. Now the dog goes on point and the bird's flush. I don't care where you're at, shoot that bird. Mm -hmm. But if, if the dog is purposely taking the birds out, when you get out in the field, actual hunting field, because it's all excited and you're excited and, and that happens, you have to not shoot the bird. You have to let your dog know, no, this is the same. And you do Mm -hmm. that a couple of times and then get your dog to go on point and drop a couple birds over at an actual hunting. And the foundation that you built, built comes into play. The yeah. dog all of a sudden realizes, oh, yeah, this is the same deal. And now your dog gets a little bit of experience and it's rock steady out in the hunting field. So there is a, there is the, uh, there is the transition from, from training to actual hunting sometimes. And mm-hmm. you as a handler kind of have to be responsible to keep that transition there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, properly. Um, so like I said, wild birds, I want to mention birds, wild birds will, will train your dog to a certain extent. Um, but the wild birds are not as plentiful nowadays. And on the off season, you can't shoot them. And yeah, in many places you can't harass them. They're nesting. So mm-hmm. what we're doing out here is mimicking what you would be doing in hunting and, and helping the bird teach the dog. So hope that made sense. Yeah. 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 No, that was great. Um, Okay, well, we are going to go ahead and dive into, so uh, today George really wants to get it into kind of some of the meat and potatoes behind the first year of training. We're going to get through um, at least some of it. We'll see how much we 
have time for. There's a lot of material here, so I'm sure that this will go into at least another episode, maybe even another two. But um, so let's let's kind of go ahead and dive in right where the book starts with. Uh, so your introductory or your first chapter, um, you give us a bunch of terms and words, which actually was a great chapter. Loved it because there was a lot of that vocabulary to make sure that later in the book there was that understanding. Yeah, thanks. Um, and then we actually mentioned the first aid kit earlier, so that's chapter two. And then chapter three, uh, you entitle the foundational first year. And mostly what you're doing in that chapter is you're laying out what are your six rules. So maybe let's let's talk about those and kind of maybe some of how you got to those and and why you think those are so important. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. I, uh, you know, when I was talking to you earlier, was, I, I thought we did a lot of the tales. We told a lot of stir- stories last time and where I was from and different dogs and stuff and, and, and be good to get into some of the meat and potatoes and, and some of the tips. Um, one of the reasons that I have those, those six rules on the foundational first year is because hunting dogs are different than your general companion dog. And what I mean by that is, a hunting dog has to have the confidence to get out in front of you and do things on its own. It has to know that its job is out in front of you and has to know that it can be independent. Whereas a companion dog, you can heal it all over the place. You can make it sit, you can make it lay down, and everybody thinks you've got a real well-mannered dog, which you do. But that dog could become what's called handler dependent and and not get out in the field, not be assertive out in the search, not get out there and point way out in front of you and hold that bird, knowing with confidence that you'll get there. So you have to give a hunting dog, it's in my opinion, you give it its head and you let it be a puppy for the first year. I think it's real important. You have to let it get out there, make mistakes, get out too far, get a little bit wild in front of you, It has to get out there and learn to do some of the things in front of you that it will need to do later on without being overhandled. And so, you know, I say give the pup its first year. I see a lot of mistakes. I have a lot of people that come to me with dogs that have problems um, and and their challenges. And almost all of them have have been human error. You know, the dog hasn't understood something. Yeah. But I'll see somebody come to me with a dog that's already being e-collar trained and it's not pointing and they're using the e-collar on point or, you know, trying to take the chase out with an e-collar and shooting with the dog or pulling the, pulling the dog in too far, continuing hacking the dog to stay close. Well, then later on, the dog is not fired up about a bird because it's got the e-collar used on it. It doesn't search well because the chase has been taken out and has been pulled in too, too much. And it becomes handler dependent because you continually hacked it back. And now you want a dog to get out there and range in the chuck field and won't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's because of what has happened. with you've, you've, you've taken that puppy year away from the puppy. Let it be a pup. And also, I think people don't realize that you have a youngster there, you know, they look at a dog and it grows fast. You know, they get a dog at eight weeks old and by the time it's six months old, you know, it's already almost full size. And, and they think they've got a dog that they can do a lot with because it looks like a dog. It's not, it's a child. 
You know, you don't take a little child out there to play baseball, and when it first starts playing, expect it to to, to hit the ball well, run around first, second, and third, and be an outstanding fir- you know first baseman or what have you. Yeah, and right. You, you just start at t-ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to start at t-ball. When uh, apparently, when I was a kid, the thing that I did in t-ball is I would make a dirt pound in the field and then jump on it to create the dust. And that was my introduction to T-ball. And I actually, I love baseball. It's been, it's been probably one of my favorite sports. In fact, one of my biggest regrets is I didn't play baseball in high school. And I really wish I would have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, baby. but yeah, but there was that foundation of starting early and young and what was age appropriate. Sure. I mean, I see people and I, I don't try to UT a dog at, at, and I'm just throwing some stuff out there at, until it's almost two years old or above two years old. And I see people that they're, they want to UT their dog at a year old. Cause it's cool to say, I, I, my dog got a UT at one year and one month old. And I see that happen. Well, you're expecting that you're expecting that dog to be a 14, 15 year old dog playing in the major leagues. That's what Mm -hmm. you're asking your dog to do. And can maybe one, one dog get in there and do that? Like one kid can be great enough to, to get in majors at 16, 17, 18 year old. Yeah, that's possible. But how many have, how many arms have been ruined in baseball? How many kids have been burnt out in baseball that could have been great? That happens to dogs all the time. The person, and I know, I know a couple um, who have, will brag about, uh, I know more than a couple about my dog, my, my dog, I, I UT'd this dog at one year and two months old, but they don't tell you about the five or six or seven that they ruined or that they called washouts because it didn't have mm-hmm. the, the belly to get through it. Those dogs would have been probably perfectly fine and been great UT dogs had they been taken a little slower. Yeah. So, yeah. so my point is, is that uh, that first year, I like to get, let my dog be a pup, give it its head, let it make mistakes. Um, let it learn to love to hunt, learn to love to have birds in its mouth and all those other things, because it's going to be a hunting dog. It is going to be a companion dog, but you got to give it its head. You Mm got to let it make mistakes. You're allowed to get out in front of you. So that's, that's the, that's the theory behind my foundational first year on those six rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you want to take a minute and kind of just talk through the six of them real quick or yeah, if you want to just go ahead and list them off, I can explain why and. And what's going on in them. Yeah. All right. So we'll start with, so rule number one, uh, keep it fun and keep formal training sessions short and simple. Okay. Um, yeah. You want the dog to want to learn to learn and, and you want to not burn the dog out on training. My sessions with my dog, my sessions, sorry, <laughs> with my, with my pups are usually about for formal training and and we'll probably hit process of osmosis in there at some point in time in these rules, but in formal training, it's only about 15 to 20 minutes long. Mm -hmm. That's when I'm actually going through formal, I'm making it, whoa, or I'm making it sit and go down or I'm making it do something. My formal training is really short. I want to leave the pup wanting to do more. Yeah. And, uh, um, so keep everything simple and keep everything short and you can elongate that a little bit later, but really that first year you want to keep the formal training sessions short and keep them positive and keep them simple. So one of the things that I've also heard that kind of c- falls along with that is always end on a positive note. Would you kind of re- reinforce that? Do you think that that's like, you know, you want to end with them doing something that was good? at the end. Yes. I try to keep a positive all the way through, but definitely you want yeah. to end on a positive note. Um, mm-hmm. and you want to, you want to end with them wanting to do more. 
Yeah. You know, if you can. Um, so maybe drink of water. Oh yeah. You're good. Uh, let me, let me ask <laughs> this question with it. Um, so say you're having a session and you get to a point where the dog gets to a point where it doesn't really understand. Um, and so it looks at you, has that confused look. I would assume that that, that would also be kind of that uh, sort of a negative experience. It's not that you have reprimanded the dog or that, um, yeah, you've, you've done anything to correct, but you recognize that moment of, okay, this dog doesn't understand. This is not, this is, you know, this has gone to not being a fully positive experience. So then what would you kind of do in that moment to, to help kind of bring it back to that positive side. My mic's on. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, you talked about reading the dog last time you asked me how you read a dog and that's exactly what you do. You're reading the dog right there and seeing, okay, this dog doesn't understand. It's not getting it. So a couple of things that I do is I try a different technique. I like to have as, and what I mean by different technique is, is I'm, I'm trying to get it to comply to whatever I'm asking of it. But the technique I use with the command to get it to comply, I might change that. I'm going to read the Mm. dog and try a different technique. I like to say I like to have as many tools in my tool pouch as possible to use. That doesn't mean I'm going to use them all. I might use one of those tools. Mm -hmm. But if that tool's not working and the dog doesn't understand, and when when I'm saying tools, I'm meaning the technique that I'm using, then I'm going to try a different technique and see if the dog gets it. And I'm going to switch it up a little bit to see if the dog can get it in another way. And when the dog gets it, I'm definitely, and this is something I see that people do all the time, is they get the dog to do it. And they're very, very minimal on their praise. Oh, good boy. Or good girl. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I've been told by some of the old-time trainers, you praise a dog too much. Well, whatever. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I like my dogs to know that I'm happy. Dogs will want to please you. So when I do get them to comply, if they don't understand the first time or second time, I try to show them physically what I'm trying to get them to do. And then I'll try a different technique if need be. And once I get them to comply, I want it positive. I want a good boy, good girl, atta mm-hmm. boy, rub it. I'll get down. I'll crouch down. And you did it. You know, I want that dog to have a distinct difference between not doing it and doing it so that it enjoys the reward yeah, yeah. at the end. Um, if it's something I just can't get the dog to do right then, then I'll back up and do something that it doesn't know. And then we'll move forward again. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out one way or another how to get the dog to know what I'm asking of it, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna figure out how to get it to comply, and then I'm gonna reward it with something very positive, whatever that reward may be. Could yeah. be petting, yeah. it could be tossing, it could be treat, whatever I decide to give it for a reward. So, did I answer that question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, so rule number two in, and we've actually talked a lot about this one, uh, is remember you're always training your puppy. We actually talked a lot about that in the last episode. Yeah. And I got actually a lot of questions on that at the, at the last clinic I did. And, and you're always training your puppy is a big one. And, and, and I'm going to give you a couple different scenarios on that. And the one that we've already probably discussed and again i apologize if i'm repeating myself is if you've given a command a couple of times and your dog doesn't comply and you can't enforce that command don't give that command again 
you know, you're other, otherwise, if you say, well, use here or come and you're giving your command, come and the dog doesn't come and you say, you know, come and it doesn't come and then it's come here. I said, come, Hey, I told you to come, blah, blah, blah. You're teaching your dog. doesn't have to come on that, on that command. So use something <laughs> different. So you're teaching your dog almost not to comply. If it doesn't come on the first two, switch it up and go to something like, Hey, 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 or over here. So you're not teaching your dog not to comply. Get it on a lead and make it comply with the with the recall command. Um, another thing is you're always teaching your dog is a lot of times there's inconsistencies, meaning you ask it one time and you make it comply, and you ask it another time. For instance, you put your dog on whoa, and you stand around talking to somebody, and the dog starts walking around, and you don't say anything. Your dog goes and starts walking around. And you've had it on woe for whatever, a minute or two or 30 seconds, and the dog's waiting for you, and it decides to go walk off, and you don't say anything. And then later on, you put your dog on woe, and the dog moves, and you pick it up and set it back and say, no, I said woe. Well, here you go. Now the dog doesn't understand. So mm -hmm. you need to be consistent on what you're doing and what you're, what you're asking it to comply. So if you're going to put your dog on woe, always release it whether it's right away or a little bit. And if it doesn't, yeah. put your dog back. Um, yeah, that's something that my wife and I have actually been working on with our dogs is, especially, you know, when we talked last time, you know, wanting to make sure that, you know, we talked about having other people help with the training. And um, that was one of your tips actually for uh, if you're doing guided hunts or testing. Um, but we, we have learned now to ask each other, like, you know, was the dog told to be on the bed? Like if we walk in, we see the dog on the bed, we confirm with the person who's in there, like, are they supposed to be there or are they free? And, and that way it's, we don't inadvertently like, Oh, Hey, come on over here. And like encourage them to break it when they're not supposed to. Yeah, You might've told that dog to be down and stay, remain in that bed and laying down position. And then your wife comes in and tells, Hey, get off the bed. And then the dog's mixed up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's something else as far as I'm glad you brought that up is the consistency within the family. And, and what that means is that, um, if somebody asks the dog to comply in the family and then doesn't get the dog to comply or, or enforce it, the dog starts learning it can it can get away with things with certain people. And so you want to be consistent all the way across the board because, like I say, mm -hmm. you're always training your dog. You're either training it that you comply all the time or you comply some of the times or maybe you don't comply. So, you know, you're... Or they figure out who's the, the sucker in the family and know that they can go do whatever they want when they're around. Yeah, <laughs> dogs, are, dogs are smart. And we're going to get oh, into, yeah. in the process of osmosis here. I know it's one of the... One of the rules, and that's that plays into you're always training your dog too. Sometimes when you're just doing things, it's again I'll go back and I'm kind of jumping in the process of osmosis here. It's like the it's like a child learning its native language. When you're just talking in the room and your child's sitting there listening to you, it's learning. So mm -hmm. when you're out doing things with your dog, even though you're not formally asking it to comply or not trying to teach it a certain command you are without knowing it many times and and you can teach that many commands knowing it without being formal training or asking for compliance and i'll go over mm -hmm. those when we get to process of osmosis i'm probably jumping ahead here. yeah yeah no you're good you're good because it's all it's all interconnected it's not like you know that this only applies in this one section these you know these six rules are very much meant to be something that you know kind of 
overlays all of the training that you're doing. Yes, right across the board. Yep. All right. So rule three, and this is, again, something that we have actually talked a lot about. Um, so we can, you know, maybe just touch a little bit on this. The repetition creates an automatic response. You know, last time you talked about how that came from your your work in... Um, Martial arts. Martial arts. <laughs> I, was, I about said kung fu, and I was just like, <laughs> nope, that is, that is not the right word. Um, yeah, so maybe, it, you know, if you want to add anything, maybe you think you haven't said, or, or if there's anything else you, you know, want to add I, with that. I think we've, went, we've gone over that one pretty well, but, I, you know, just uh, two things on that. One is you can do repetition throughout the day on whatever it is, on many items. Um, to create an automatic response and you can do it during training. The one caution I will give you is when I say repetition creates an automatic response, I don't mean to repeat something in training where it gets boring or it gets negative. Mm, this yeah. Is, this yeah. Is, that's a good clarification. Yeah. This is throughout the day, every day. And when we get to woe, I'll talk about how I do woe and why I don't use a, a I don't use a, a woe table or a barrel or anything anymore because because mine's repetitiveness. Mm -hmm. um, so just be careful on that. Um, if you're dealing with a versatile hunting dog, remember that uh, uh, too many repetitions can turn the dog off. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, you throw a bumper for a, for a, a a retriever dog, a lab or whatever, a golden, and its DNA is to retrieve that thing and be as happy as, as on the 20th toss as it is on the first, but you throw it for a versatile yeah. dog and about the third, fourth, fifth times, many of them are like, okay, I'm tired of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, is there something know, else that we can do? Yeah, exactly. So you don't want to be too repetitive. I hope that clarified that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Cause you don't want to just have like 15 minutes where every time the dog takes three or four steps, you tell it to woe. Yeah. And yeah. then you release it. And then another four steps later, you tell it to woe. And cause yeah, cause that, that'll get into that sort of a negative repetition. Yeah. And you don't want to, you don't want it to be, well, when we get into, well, I'll talk about that how the repetition throughout the day creates the automatic mm -hmm. response. Yeah. All right. Rule four, uh, which again, we've talked a little, a lot about this already. Let the puppy be a puppy. Yeah. We've already, we've already touched on that. And that is you, especially with a hunting dog, the pup's a young puppy. It's a child. Let mm -hmm. it be a child. Yes, you have to have control. And that's where my woe and my recall command come in. If I, if I yeah. have a dog that I can stop almost anywhere, anytime, and I can have it come back to me, I have a dog in control. Yeah, yeah. So that is, and I will get a dog to go to a down position. So that's, that is some obedience. But don't get over obedient on that dog it is mm -hmm. a hunting dog that has to have some freedom and have to have has to have a mind of its own to be able to be confident to get out in front of you and do its job so um, which is one of the things with my my second griff that i have hallie that i've had to be really careful with because she you know is a little bit more timid than the other one like when she was when she was a pup um you know, she just, she would always kind of stick close to me. And so I had to like encourage her, like, no, it's okay for you to run across this field that we're at because, you know, I know I'm in a safe place and you can go do that. In fact, I want you to go do that. I'm going to praise you when you go do that, you know, because otherwise I, I think it would have been really easy for me to, to have her end up being handler dependent and where she did not want to go out very far. Yep. So. Yep. That first year, let them, let them be a pup. Let them get out there, have their head, let them make some mistakes. 
you know, that first year is for them to learn to love to hunt, learn to get exposed to many different things and make some mistakes and enjoy life and enjoy the fun that they can have with you a field and in the wetlands and mm-hmm. at home. Um, you can pull them in later, trust me. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah. really hard to push them back out. Yep. All right. So we'll move on to rule number five here. It's easier to teach a puppy correctly than it is to fix a problem later. Oh boy. Yeah. That's, that's a big one. Um, and I, and I see this all the time. If you take your time in training and train in a sequence where the dog understands and do things in a slow manner, um, you can train a dog in a positive, positive sequence and, and in a manner that the dog enjoys it and goes forward in a nice, easy, easy, um, I'm trying to use a word like conductivity. It just folds from one to another, like the domino effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you make a mistake and you screw a dog up someplace, and I'll just use like gunfire, for instance, um, and, and you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, you now have a major problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to fix and it's hard to go back to, it can set you back months, sometimes years. Um, if you, if you create a problem or let the dog get into a, um, let, and I'll use another one, catching a bird. So you got a high strung dog and you let it cut, catch a couple birds. Um, now it knows it can catch birds. Yeah. So, and so it wants to then catch all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or focusing on the retrieve too much before it's learned to point. And then it goes out there and it goes on point and it goes, well, and, you know, he or she loves it when I bring it back to the bird. I'm just going to grab this bird and bring it back to him. That, that's what they want me to do. Mm-hmm. So, yes, if you do things incorrectly or something happens to the pup when it's young, it creates a problem. It's much harder to fix. And, and, I, and I say this, I use this sometimes when I'm talking to somebody in clinics or just to one of my clients. And that is, you know, I, 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 I have done a lot of athletics. One of them is golfing. One of them is, is snow skiing. And, and <laughs> you know, you pick up a golf club when you're whatever age and you start swinging at a ball and you try to figure it out and you get out there and mm-hmm. start hitting at the range and so forth. And, yeah, you, you know, you watch videos or read books and you do this and you do that and you can hit the ball okay. And then you have this little 11-year-old kid come up with a perfect, beautiful swing and then drives the ball twice as far as you and it is half the size of, as you and constantly down the middle and you're like, holy moly. Yeah, I had a, I had a friend in high school that his little brother was the like state champion for his age and was like, 12 years younger than us and we would take him golfing and he would beat us every time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well that child learned from somebody or, or had a parent or somebody that taught them how to do it right to begin with. Mm -hmm. They didn't do all the mistakes that we make on golfing, holding the club wrong, coming over the top, swinging, whatever. They didn't do all those mistakes that you have to try to figure out. And now you've, now you've done, I'm going to say ingrained, but you've repetition creates an automatic response. You've done it wrong so much that it's hard to get to do it right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So same thing with snow skin, you know, you got there and you muddle through snow skin and you're trying to figure it out yourself. You have somebody helping you a little bit and, yeah, some little kid come bopping by on, the, you know, going through the snow, cutting it right in front of you, and and you go, oh my goodness, look at that. Well, that that child was taught to 
to ski properly and have all the correct techniques. I could go into archery or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you learn to do things right and don't make all the mistakes, it's way easier to get real good at it than it is to have to correct mistakes and bad habits later on. Mm -hmm. so. Well, and let me let me maybe ask this question because one of the things that can also play a part in that is like, so my my friend's little brother he just naturally had a smooth swing and, and that was seen and noticed. And instead of trying to like instantly correct it, they just kind of worked with what was there. Do you think that that kind of like, especially with, you know, a good bird dog has, is bred to be able to find birds, you know, versatile dog should point. It should have, you know, this inclination that I want to go get that bird and bring it back. Um, you think some of it is, and, and this may be part of letting a puppy be a puppy is not trying to, to, you know, wedge it into something that maybe naturally over there that you would see if you just let it kind of do its thing. Um, yes, yes. And I'm going to clarify that. Oh yeah. Great. Perfect. So, um, you're going to have dogs and puppies that have natural they do things naturally. They hold the bird and bring it back to you naturally. They point naturally, which is great. But there's going to be mistakes that happen in that. Yeah, they're going to yeah. they're going to point and want to go take out a bird, or there's going to be a dog come in front of them. They're going to break. There's going to be mistakes that happened, and and even that little child that has a great smooth golf swing, I will bet you ten to one odds it's still been taught by somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. how to do it consistently, how to, yeah, how, yeah. How, okay. yeah, how to make the outcome be consistent and, and not to flounder around later on. You, you, both dogs and people, um, still, if you do things, I, I, I'll, well, I'll get off it, but yes, there is, um, dogs and people that can do things well, but I guarantee you, and I taught my son archery, and he was world-class and Tiger Woods father taught him the same thing. You can have the gift, but if you don't work at it mm -hmm. and you don't do things correctly and consistently, the person that doesn't have a gift will surpass you. Yeah. And yeah. The person who puts in the work yes. will, will, will end up, um, further ahead. Yes. Yes. And I, and I saw that in martial arts. And so that's what I'm saying. You can have, I was, I was, pretty natural in martial arts. I mean, I was, I was athletic and I can do things pretty well. So I, I passed most of my, my belt test the first time. Well, I had a, a, a guy that was hanging out with me, Brad, um, and, and Brad was, uh, not gifted. He plunked his belt test two or three times and he ended up being the heavyweight champ of the world. He ended up being an amazing martial artist, much better than I am. He ended up instructing me, and I was his cornerman and his sparring partner. And it was because of the tenacity that he had and the willingness to work and the willingness to pay attention and to con continue to repeat the moves and the techniques that he was taught till he was better than the person who was natural. So mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just tossing that out. Yeah, so, yeah, which, um, which also I think is an encouragement for a lot of people with their bird dogs that if in that first year, if it, if there's kind of this moment where you're like, gosh, I don't know if this dog has it, that there, that there is still kind of, you can, you can continue to put in the work. It's, you know, it may take longer, 
but you can still end up with a rock star dog that that does amazing things out in the field. It's just that it's going to take that consistency and that that work and and putting putting it in. Absolutely, I've got to tell you that um, there's a story in the book about Miss Timid. Um, there, the old trainers and breeders and. And still to this day, there are people, like I told you about the UT dogs that were done young, they will call dogs in a minute. And they were like, oh, this dog can't make it. I had a dog brought to me not too long ago. It's probably, a, I don't know, three weeks ago, a month ago. And the person emailed me and said, my dog flunked out of the out of the school because it won't point and won't do this. And the trainer said it flunked. It flunked. And and I asked it some questions, asked the person some questions, excuse me, about it. And, and uh Dog ended up coming to me, and within like three sessions, it was pointing like a rock star. So the trainer failed, not 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 the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and my point is, is that many pups that don't look like they, like you said, like they're going to be that rock star. The rock star is in them. It's just how do you get it out of them, and do you have patience enough to wait for their maturity to come and for mm-hmm. them to grasp mm-hmm. it? And just like the martial artist I was talking about, Brad, um, <laughs> you know, when he got it, he got it. Yeah, and yeah. And he was better at it <laughs> than <laughs> I was. And many times that pup that's a late bloomer or or made a mistake or was allowed to make a mistake or the handler made a mistake or the trainer made a mistake. Once that, that, that is fixed or they're mature or they get it, boy, they can be rock stars. But if you can avoid the mistakes. Yeah. You're, you're always going to be better off if you can avoid them to begin with. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, and we've kind of, we've talked a lot about this, this last rule. Consistency is key. Yeah. You know, just making sure that, you know, when you say something, it means the same thing every time you say it and, yep. you know, not creating those layers of confusion. And it actually, I think it ties in a bit with sort of that idea that um, we talked about last time where you don't use stay because it just adds this layer of complexity that doesn't need to be there. And so it makes it, it makes the command inconsistent by using that other command. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, and we won't beat that horse, but um, it stay, it, many people put it through through a number of different commands. Sit, stay, woe, stay, down, stay. Well, what the heck does that mean to the dog? Mm-hmm. You're using it with mm-hmm. different commands. Sit, 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 sit. And I mentioned this in the clinic the other day when I was explaining it because we were talking about that. And I said, you don't say your recall command. You don't say come now. You don't say here now, meaning that if you don't say now, the dog doesn't have to come. The same thing with bow or sit. So be consistent. Keep it simple. The K-I-S-S, you know, keep it simple, stupid, whatever that thing is. And, yeah. and uh, um, yeah, yeah. So, man, be consistent. We've, we've talked about consistency a lot. You're right. And, and, and that's important because if you're consistent, the dog understands. If you're inconsistent, you have a confused dog. And the worst thing you can do with a dog is have it confused and then expect it to comply. That's the worst thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we're only going to get in probably one more topic here, which is going to be, we're going to move into woe. Um, now that we've gotten through kind of those six, uh, those six rules that you have. So with woe, maybe let's talk a little bit about, um, 
so obviously you you have that you know right after the rules it's the very you know there's the there's the chapter four that actually helped spark this podcast but then <laughs> chapter five you move into to woe and and different techniques for that and why it's so important so maybe flesh out a little bit about to you why it's so important you know you've you've mentioned that when you have a, a litter of puppies you start at six weeks they start to learn that yep so maybe talk you know kind of walk us through some of your different techniques why this is such a foundational command for you and a foundational thing for your bird dog to know okay i'll do that and then we'll talk about some of the techniques so um what was my foundational command and it was great because i had larry i i did it uh, in 2019 i did a training clinic for uh the awpga national specialty and and uh and larry woodward came out who's been training dogs forever longer than me and he did a presentation, I did a presentation, and we were doing the exact same thing almost. We were both, but we both said, our, what was our foundational command? He said the same thing. He's been to the Invitational many times, and we were both on the on the exact same page. It was, <laughs> either one of us could have not come to that uh, training clinic, and they would all had, they, everybody would have heard the same thing. And the reason myself and other people have woe as a foundational command is it, it sets the standard for future training. It sets the foundation for future training as well as get your dog in a safe manner and a complying manner at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So, so as I said, if you have your dog or puppy that you can woe anywhere, any place, you have a dog in control. Say your dog is walking around and there's a little little kid that three-year-old child that's in the house and your dog wants to run up and jump on that child Mm, that could hurt that child and you say whoa bam your dog stops now you've got control of that pup Uh, your dog starts to run across the street and you say whoa your dog stops Mm -hmm. Um, so whoa becomes a safety factor and becomes a factor that you can control the dog Um, so first and foremost if i can whoa my dog now i know i can go almost anywhere and i have some control of my dog Mm -hmm. Uh, the recall command comes in after that so that's the primary one when the dog is a puppy now as we move forward and we get into steadiness you know um people at my clinic heard me say this and i'll just i'll just repeat it when i get to steadiness training with my dog and we'll get to that later on in a different episode. But I don't start at the pointing. I start with my dog on woe, and I start I start throwing pigeons and flushing birds and stuff, and then and then I let the dog go for a retrieve. So the dog is in the woe position. It already knows the woe position. It's been doing it all its life. It knows to stay. So now after we've done that and we take it and it goes on point, and I say woe, the dog's not all amped up to go take off after a bird or break point. It already mm-hmm. has been woed, so it makes it a really easy transition to get into to get into steadiness. My pup wants outside. CK down. Um, so it makes it much easier in future training to for the dog to understand. So it's it's at the beginning, and and it is a foundation for future training and steadiness and other things so mm-hmm. that's why woe is so so important to me it uh it, it's a safety factor to begin with if it's a factor to get your dog to, your puppy to comply and then later on it makes advanced training way way easier and one of the things i i i, I said at the at the clinic that everybody's you could see their light come on the aha moment and i and i said this there's a lot of people that say you know you shouldn't woe your dog once it's on point 
let it break or do whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, I use this scenario. So you, you, go to, you go to learn how to row a boat, and your instructor says, okay, jump in the well, kayak or whatever, jump in it and go ahead and row in a circle there and, and come back to me and bring it in, bring, bring the kayak in over here. You get out there, and you've not rowed before. You don't know what you're doing. So mm-hmm. you're floundering out there. You're trying to get the oars to work properly, and you're, you look like a fool, and you're not even sure you can get back. And, you know, you're splashing, and you're doing this, and the, 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 everything's tilting the wrong way. And you finally get back, and you're, like, embarrassed because the whole class was watching you. And mm-hmm. you get back, and the... And the instructor goes, well, you know, you did that all wrong. Here's what you want to do. You want to put your feet down in these stirrups like here, right here on this platform. And you want to kind of use your legs. And when you pull back, you want to, with your, you want your hands to come up so that the paddles go in the water. And then you want to pull with your back and push with your legs, push forward with your legs. So you're pulling the water. And then when you get, when you get all the way back, then you want to put your hands down. So the oars come out of the water and you want to lean forward. And as you lean forward, you move your hands forward and that'll let the oars slip all the way back in the normal position and not splash. And then you go through that same motion and you'll see that your boat, your kayak, whatever will go nicely. And now you go out there and try it and you do it perfectly. And you're thinking, well, you jerk. Why didn't you tell me that the first <laughs> yeah, time? Right. You know, if you had told me that, I wouldn't have floundered out there like a fool. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so with, with a dog and a puppy, I think the same way. I don't want to go out there and put my dog when I get to steadiness, try to make it stay there and make mistakes and use a knee collar under its belly to make it stay there or put a pinch collar on its neck so it can't move when it goes on point. I mean, those are techniques that you can use. I I want my dog to go on point and go, whoa. And the dog goes, oh, I'm supposed to stay right here. Mm -hmm. Okay. I stay right here. And now I shoot a bird and release it and it goes and gets the bird and everything's cool. I already knew what it was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. So why... Why try to make it, there are times when you want the dog to make mistakes, like I mentioned before, when it, when it's pointing is not to break point. There's are times you want the dog to make a mistake to instruct it and let it learn. But mm-hmm. there's no sense in, in making it and make a fool of itself and, and totally not understanding when it's so easy to get it to understand and comply and then just move forward. And so the woe does that for me in steadiness later on and another training later on. So that's why woe is so important. Mm-hmm. Controlling safety at the beginning and a foundational, a foundational command for future advanced training. Well, and it sounds like part of what it also does is it helps, you know, create those those building blocks, those stepping stones for them to learn at, at you know, keep them in those smaller increments for them so that when they do find a bird and they start to go on point, you can kind of just throw in that piece that like, oh, I know, you know, I know this. Um and it helps keep it as positive as possible. Yeah, it lets the dog understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And if the dog understands, it's gonna it's gonna be much easier for it to comply. So yeah, um, that's that's why woe is so important to me at the beginning. And then I hear people say, you know, I don't, uh, we don't teach our dogs to, to woe. We use the wait command or the stay command or the whatever command. Well, it doesn't matter. If you're getting your dog to stand in one position. And then, and then not move. You can say whatever word you want. The other reason is I use woe is, is because I don't have my dog sit a lot on the first year. And mm-hmm. people will say, oh, you can have your dog sit and it'll point. Yeah, that, that is true. Most, most dogs you can make sit and stay in the sit, sit position and it will point fine. But I've seen many, and I mean many, 
dogs sit on point. One of the dogs in the clinic, somebody raised their hand and said, well, what happens when your dog goes on point and sit? And I know why they asked that question, because their dog was going on point and sitting. Mm -hmm. And the reason is it was taking the pressure off. There's pressure on a dog when it's on point not to break, and if it's been taught to sit a lot and it's been pushed down and relieve that pressure, we can get into that later on, um, it'll go to the sit position. I've seen that happen a lot. So I can put my dog in the woe position and leave it there for a little bit not put it in the sit position, and if a dog's pressure is to stop and stand still or go all the way down to the ground and not, not have that in-between sit, then it's probably not going to sit on woe. I mean, excuse me, sit on point. So the woe allows me to put the dog in a position without making it sit and make it stay there for a little while mm-hmm. in a position that it will be in when it goes on point. It also establishes some, some obedience because you've got to have some obedience in that first year. You know, I don't do a lot of sit. Sit is an obedience command. I don't do heal. Um, and so the woe is part of the the obedience training for the puppy in the first year, but it applies to being out in the field going on point or something or steadiness later on. So it, mm-hmm. it, it gives me the obedience factor, but it also keeps me in the um, arena of it's a hunting dog. Yeah. Did that, yeah. Make, did that yeah. make sense? Yeah. No, okay. that that's great. That's okay. great. So okay. let's... Let's we'll have to wrap up this conversation here in just a uh, a little bit to kind of keep within our general time frame. But what are maybe some of the different techniques? And you know, you've talked to you've talked several times about how you know you woe your dog, you know, twenty to forty times in a day because you, you need that consistent, you know, that repetition piece in different uh-huh. ways. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that to kind of round out our conversation on woe. Are we already at an hour? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, woe, I started a pup right away. As I mentioned before, for those of you who haven't heard it or, or, um, when my, when I have a litter and they're six weeks old, we keep the litter in a pen where the door will open. I feed the dog, the puppies outside of the pen in another area, a uh, little pen that's wide open and, the dogs are behind the, the puppies are behind the pen. And, and, uh, as I'm going to the, the open pen where I'm going to place the dog food down, I have a, a bowl that I'm wrapping hard. I'm doing a loud noise cause I want the dog to associate loud noises with something positive. And I'm saying, whoa. And I set the, 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 the bowl on the ground and all the puppies are at the door. They're at the pen. It's a wire pen they can see. And they're all wanting to get to that food, but they're all stuck in a standing position. And I'm saying, whoa, as I put the food down and then I have somebody open the door. And as soon as I open the door, of course, they come flying at me to the bowl and I give my recall command, come. So right at the beginning, they're realizing what woe is and they're realizing what come is. So that's implementing two commands right there that I think are the most important. Mm -hmm. Um, As, as, as I get a puppy at eight weeks old or what have you, um, I make the pup woe before it eats, and that's simply making it stand up. And to start with, you go very, very short. Set the bowl down, even if you have to have somebody hold it. And if the dog starts to move, you put your hand up and you have somebody pick the dog up, set it right back down if it starts to move, and just say woe with your hand up. When that bowl goes down, you say come, and it goes to the food. You can teach that really quickly. I, I you know, It doesn't take long before you have your dog woeing and waiting to come to his food bowl not long at all so i'll do that i will have my dog woe before it goes outside so if we go to the door i'll make it stand there and say woe and then i'll say out when it's time to go out out is a is a command that they learn by osmosis and we'll get into that later on 
So I will woe the dog before before it crosses the street corner, before it goes outside, uh, before it goes in the car, before it goes in its crate, before it comes out of its crate. The dog learns to woe, which means stand up, before it goes and does many things, and that's the repetition. And all you do is put your hand up. If the dog moves, you pick it up off all fours and set it right back down. If you have a stubborn dog, I pick the dog up and I shake it a little bit. And I set it back down. Dogs, puppies, dogs don't like that. So they don't want to move because they don't want that feeling of being up in the air with a small shake and setting back down. Mm -hmm. That's really, uh, I'm even making it sound harder than it is. All pups, and and I'm sure there are people out there go, yeah, I had my dog rolling before it ate in two sessions, you know, in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, So that's, that's the first thing I do. And I do that repetitiously throughout the day, every single day of the dog's life. Even right now when, and and people laugh and I showed it at my clinic, I I opened my door for the dogs to come into the house and they stand there because they're waiting for me to say, come on in. Mm -hmm. If I open for them to go out, they stand there. When I, when I lower the tailgate on the, on the UTV, they'll stand there waiting for me to say out. When I open it for them to jump in, they'll stand there because that's all they know all their life was the woe position before they did this or did that. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The other one I use is the woe post. And I, it's, it, this is, I know we're probably running way over. Sorry. I no, just, it's good stuff. I'm sure that people <laughs> want to hear this. So I did the clinic the other day and I showed the people how to do woe post. And, uh, um, and the woe post is you have the dog on a long lead. And I used a puppy. I think I used Brooke and Riley. I, I'm pretty sure I did. I want to make sure the dog wants to come to me. So I think I had a bird in my hand. But you can have a treat. You can have nothing. You can, if I don't know the pup, I want to make sure I have something that entices it. My pups will want to be with me. So I really don't need anything. But what you do is you have a long lead. And as you're walking, you make sure that the pup or dog walks on the opposite side of a pole. Now I'll use a T post if I'm training out in the field. There's a telephone pole right by what's got a power transformer on it, right by my barn. I use that. That's what I use in the clinic. You can use a pole that's at a, a stop sign or a, a bollard that's in a parking lot or a tetherball pole or a basketball pole in the school, school grounds. Whatever pole is available, you have your dog on a long lead. And you get the dog as it's walking alongside you or fairly close to you to walk on one side of the pole and you're on the other. And you hurry up and get in front of the dog with the long lead. And then and then you let the dog reach the end of the lead or you pull on it and you say, whoa. So picture this. Your dog is stopped and the lead is going back behind your dog around the pole and then coming towards you. And you're now standing in front of your dog. And I have a lot of pictures in the book that shows this. So you have said, whoa. You're in front of the dog, but yet the dog has felt it coming from behind and it can't move forward and it wants to. And it's like magic. It's like, I can't move. And then he's Mm -hmm. or she's in front of me, but yet the pressure came from behind. And then you let go of the lead and you give your dog your recall command. It comes flying to you. Well, that's magical too, because now the dog has been slammed to the woe position from behind when you're in front of it. And whenever you told it to come, all of a sudden it's free and it can come. The dog doesn't realize what's going on, but it but it senses that somehow you, when you said whoa, you could you could apply pressure from the back and stop that dog. And when you said come, the dog was free to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. because the dog is going to be used to you being behind it with the lead. Yes, and but that kind of adds in that like, yeah, just another layer of 
of how, you know, making sure that they understand it. Yep. And then the other one I do, there's a few more. I do a, a half hitch in front of my dog. I, like I said, I don't have my dog heel. So I do a half hitch with a long lead under my dog's belly. And there's pictures of this in the book. And I let the dog roam in front of me. And what I will do is every now and then when the dog's going a little too far out or too fast, I'll just say easy and I'll let the dog pull on that lead itself or give it a slight tug so the dog slows down. Now, this will come into play later on in the field, but the easy command tells the dog to slow down. I like my dog in its first year to be in front of me, to know that its job's in front of me. Later on, I can make it heal. That's really easy, easy to do. But right now, I want it in front of me. So I'll use the easy command with the half hitch as it's walking in front of me. And then every so often, I will say, whoa. And I will stop the dog with the half hitch and hold it there. And I'll walk up to it, keep it in well position. Even if I have to apply pressure with that half hitch in the lead until I get up to it, I'll pet it from its shoulders back. And then I'll say, okay, out and let it move forward again. And I'll do that every so often during the day when we're on walks, whatever we're doing. Mm -hmm. So the dog learns that when you say, whoa, it has to stop completely. When you say easy, it has to slow down. And then I will take um, my lead and there's a, a little thing I do where I take my lead, and you'll have to look at look at pictures, either YouTube on or um, in the book, where I loosen up the dog's lead, and I put the lead, if you can picture this, kind of hard to explain it, but I, if I take my lead, instead of hooking it to the collar from the rear, I take it under the collar going towards the rear, and then I put a loop under the belly, and hook it with a carabiner or a large clip so that when I pull from the front upwards, it is going through the collar and going to the back of the dog, just like it was on a half hitch. So now I can walk around the front of the dog and say, whoa, and if it moves, I just tug on that and, and it pulls just like the half hitch and it makes the dog stay there. This is a, a training tool and a technique I use so that I can walk around the dog in front of it and actually have it feel like I'm pulling from behind. This gets used to, from, to the dog for me saying, whoa. And later, as I walk in front of the dog to flush a bird or look for a bird, the dog is accustomed to me going in front of it and knows that I can apply pressure to it from the rear, even though I'm in front of it. That one, it's probably best to look at the book or one of my videos of that one. Mm -hmm. So that's another technique I use. And before I take any dog out in the field in here, I go all through those techniques. I will, I will place the dog on whoa, pick him up, send him back down. I'll do the whoa post method, method. I'll put the half inch on it, let it walk around, do easy a few times, then do whoa. And then I'll do this technique that I just told you about under the collar and then uh, kind of like a half hitch in the back. And I'll walk around the front of the dog. Now, when we go out in the field and I've done this with a pup that first comes to me and the dog goes on point, I can put it in a whoa position. Or if it doesn't go on point, I can leave the half inch in position as it gets too close to the, I don't woe, I don't ever woe a dog on the point. I let it point first, but I will let it have pressure to, to, to try to induce it to point if a dog won't point naturally. Mm -hmm. So if the dog's going into the bird and it's one that just, I can't get the point naturally, I'll have the half itch and I won't say a thing. And as the dog goes in on its own, I will stand still and that half itch will tighten on that dog's belly until it has to stop. And when it stops on its own, then I'll say, whoa, then we'll go up and work with the dog. Mm -hmm. So um, those are all, all the techniques or many of the te techniques that I use. 
um, you know, one of the questions I got asked at the, at the clinic was, do you use a barrel or a, or a table? And I don't, I used to. Um, and the reason I don't use a table for a woe or a barrel is because I start my dogs at six weeks and eight weeks old mm-hmm. on the ground. I don't need to do that. There's no transfer. There's no transfer from a table to the ground. They've learned woe on the ground. They know how to woe. It's become an automatic response if I've done it enough. Yeah. And therefore, when I get to training woe, there's really no, no formal training on a table or on a barrel. They've done it all their life right on the ground. There's no transfer. And I'm not saying that doing it on a table or a barrel is something you shouldn't do. If that works and you feel comfortable doing it, do it. I don't do it because I don't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I hope that answered your question on that. And we yeah. went over woe quite a bit. I can't yeah, yeah that was that was really good. We're going to go ahead and, and wrap up so we don't get too long here. Um yeah, so that 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 was that was great. I think that that would be really helpful for people um, as they have the book to to hear kind of a little bit more of that explanation, maybe, and um, can be, uh, yeah, just a, just an added an added bonus for them uh, as they're going going through training with their dog and going through the book. So, um, next session, I'd like to uh, we can just continue with this and go into more of these. Uh, techniques and tips you know mm-hmm. we've told, told yeah yeah so like so in the next one uh we'll we'll, we'll kind of keep moving uh, a little bit through through the way that the book does so today we talked about the six rules and whoa um and the next time uh we'll get into birds and gunfire and then and then we'll get in a little bit more to that osmosis that you have alluded to a couple different times and talked about so we'll talk some more about that great um yeah, so just want to want to thank everybody again for listening uh, into this podcast. Um, once again, I just want to thank you, George, for for taking the time to share uh, your knowledge and experience with us. Um, it's every time we sit down, I, I I end up learning something that's helping me with my dogs, and I really appreciate it. Um, as always, you can learn more about George, uh, by heading over to huntinggriff.com and you can learn more from George by checking out his book tips and tales on training your bird dog, um, which is available on Amazon. Don't forget. You can, uh, follow our Instagram tips and tales podcast, uh, to, um, know when episodes are coming out and if you have any questions that you want to ask uh we have a couple that we were hoping to get to and just didn't get you know ran out of time george had a lot to say really good stuff uh so hopefully we'll get to those at the beginning of the next one um you can write in to the tips and tales podcast at gmail.com um and yeah and hopefully we'll be able to get some more of those questions in on future episodes thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss when the next episode comes out and as always remember what george says in his book blessed be the men and women that spend their lives with a bird dog by their side have a good day